KXSFLP San Francisco 102.5 FM. Now here, now streaming in the World Wide Web at KXSF.FM. Frequency uplift in the house till midnight. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our frequency partners. In fact, San Francisco Public Press, KSFP, for holding it down for the last six hours. Trading off now. You have us until 4 a.m. And me, Radio Bob, here on the Frequency Uplift until midnight. Tonight, a special, a special time. Some great music, some interesting conversation with pianist, composer, improviser, electronic musician, Craig Taborn, who I got to sit down with, spend some time, and have the fruit of that interview. It's a little long, so this night is for jazz heads, for folks who are into improvised and creative music. Little Ornette Coleman, the skies of America. But I think we'll begin with some remixes and the great Ghanaian Ghanaian and UK chorus player Jelly Keba Suso, his track. Yeah. 
Support for KXSF is provided by Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned cooperative that has been serving San Francisco vegetarian food and providing a model for sustainable living since 1975. Rainbow is located at 1745 Folsom Street. Visit them online at rainbow.coop. KXSF would like to thank Rainbow Grocery for its continued support. Thank you, Rainbow. Thank you all for tuning in again. This is the Frequency Uplift tonight, tonight with composer, with improviser, pianist, electronic musician, Craig Taborn, uh, who I had the honor of uh, speaking with at length. You'll catch quite a bit of that. It's a pretty great conversation about his background, about all of that. He just released on ECM a second uh of solo improvisation called Shadow Plays, uh, taken, as you'll hear, uh, from 2020 in a concert in Vienna. But an interesting progression to there and to this. We'll start off with actually the last track from that release, Now in Hope, and go into the interview uh, itself. Thanks for tuning in. Again, thanks to our frequency partners, KSFP, San Francisco Public Press, to Rainbow Grocery, our underwriter for this hour, and to Craig Taborn for taking the time. And we'll come right back. This is from the release Shadow Plays, Now in Hope.
Okay, thank you for coming and spending a moment with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So, um, you know, I, I know you uh, came up from, I did a little uh, reading and I've heard a little bit, uh, you came up uh, in the suburbs of Minneapolis and started music at a very early age, broad and interesting career, which grew up in Golden Valley, a suburb of mm -hmm. Minneapolis, started playing at a very early age, uh, piano, and uh, tell us a little bit about your your process and your influences growing up. I know you were from Golden Valley in one of your amazing new bands with childhood friends, Reed Anderson and Dave King, the drummer from uh, mm -hmm. Bad Plus. So tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about how it was for you coming up and becoming a musician. How did you know you were a musician in a way? Well, I... Well, my father was a psychologist and a college professor, um, but he played piano just for his own enjoyment um, in the house. Uh, I mean, kind of blues and gospel based stuff. So that was really the music that was in the house. Plus his record collection, I discovered in the garage, actually all this vinyl records, of course, from his younger days, I discovered when I was about 12. And it was a lot of jazz. I mean, it, you know, he was of the era of the late 50s, early 60s kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. uh, that was what really kind of just him playing and then discovering his records kind of was a gateway into a, a lot of things at, a, at an age like, you know, 11 or 12, or really like 10 or 11, um, that I probably wouldn't have gotten in into otherwise and from that it was really just i mean it was a pretty unremarkable environment in um in some ways just golden valley as a suburb of a uh, middle american city but i started uh just i had a sense of autodidacticism in in learning music from my father so when i started playing piano or just sort of approaching the piano myself, just because it was there. Um, I just had a, there was a little bit of, of a sense of agency, you know, like I knew, oh, I can figure something out on my own. Um, so I wasn't hesitant to start trying things, I guess is what it was. And then shortly after, yeah, just growing up around there, I just started playing piano. I asked for lessons uh, early on um, when I was 12 and, uh, just started playing but for some reason I, I my musical interests just uh really grew rapidly across a lot of a variety of uh approach styles and approaches of kind of music and a lot of that had to do with Minneapolis in the 80s which was pretty vibrant there's just a lot going on musically around there with uh obviously the Prince kind of Prince and the Time thing was popular. Also the kind of underground rock scene with bands like Husker Du and the replacements was going on. And I had a friend in junior high who was like a, had a fanzine and he was like a punk rock guy. And I just remember he invited me to an all ages show and it was um, the Minutemen when I was like 12. Just that gateway then led me into to a lot of that just knowing that I could go to these shows, you know, at the age of 12, if I chose, you know, that was yeah. a pathway in. And then there was also the Walker Art Center. And shortly after that, I think I just I just started going to see music that was being programmed at the Walker Art Center, which was a very adventurous 
programming where it was just dipping into a lot of New York, in particular downtown New York, and a lot of Chicago AACM kind of stuff. Right. So I would see things like Tim Byrne or Bill Frizzell or C. Roscoe Mitchell or or Julius Hemphill at a time when, in particular with like Zorn or Tim Byrne or Frizzell, you weren't seeing that stuff even anywhere in the States really in like 84, 85, right. but it would come to the Walker. So I had all of that, all of that stuff was influencing me. And I just, just realizing it was available to someone even at, in, in, in their adolescence was uh, a big thing. Did that pull you to towards a jazz medium, hearing the free expression going on in those kind of bands, Last Exit and all those other, you know, for so? Yeah, well, the jazz, yeah, the jazz was my dad's record collection. Like the, that was like Horace Silver and Bobby Timmons. And then the, the wilder jazz, the freer stuff and moving left was definitely because of specifically checking out the Walker. But I also went to the library a lot and I just started pulling records out of the library and that opened my ears a lot too i was just there was a whoever was um, acquiring recordings in, in particular jazz and kind of in the classical thing in the hennepin county public library system was definitely a fan of or interested in a lot of creative music around that there was there was just a kind of a completest catalog of like AACM related things. There was a lot of really contemporary, you know, kind of classical composer, you know, a lot of Ligeti and that kind of stuff that I was just pulling. And you could take 20, 20 records out, I remember at a time. Oh. Uh, and so I used, used to stack it up and like, oh, let's try this. Or what's, who's Anthony Braxton? Let's check that out, you know? <laughs> like, And I, I was, you know, 12, 12 years old, 13 years old, but I just try anything, you know? Right. That's a great education yeah. for sure. And so, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, so that brought you eventually um, that's that autodidasticism and that um, that mm -hmm. research brought you eventually to the University of Michigan, connecting mm -hmm. with uh, the jazz studies there, music studies there, mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. James Carter Quartet, and a lot of session work, a lot of amazing connections with New York folks. Eventually, mm -hmm. um, talk about yeah how th how that was for you and sort of that explosion of work yeah well it was an interesting path because i i went there i wasn't a music school student i wasn't in music school i was okay. liberal arts but i did have a sense of at that point i definitely had a sense of wanting to do music um at some level but i always thought i would go there and then maybe transfer to new england conservatory or mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking, because I really wanted to be a composer, kind of. I had a sense yeah. of uh, composers. And I remember I chose that because it was near Detroit. I knew that. So it was near a major jazz city. That was in my mind. And I also chose it because of, like, Iggy Pop and that thing. And I also chose it because of the the history of the music school in relation to sort of American uh, experimental music, like... Um, Gordon Mumma and and uh, Robert Ashley and those people were there in the early 60s and I knew that so uh, on the music side so I had a sense of all of that but I wasn't in the music school I was in liberal arts because I, I wasn't sure I was going to do music at that point but moving there because I played jazz I had been playing in high school and stuff um, one of the first people I met was 
drummer Gerald Cleaver, who I still associated with, and who's now uh, out there in the Bay Area with you guys. He just moved out there. New uh, California Conservatory of Jazz, which is a new conservatory that's, yeah, Gerald's there in the Bay Area now for those of people who interested. Um, but Gerald was, yeah, but Gerald uh, is a Detroiter. And I met him right away because we both auditioned for the jazz combo class. Because I wanted, even though I wasn't in the music school, I wanted to get some kind of playing in and I didn't have, know where else to go. Okay. So I auditioned for this jazz combo and we met auditioning and he gave me a ride back to my dorm. And he was a few years older and connected to the uh, Detroit music scene. And so it was sort of right away I think, well, when I say right away, within a month or two, he had told people in Detroit that there was a young pianist from Minneapolis who was playing, you know, relatively well. And um, so, like, I started getting gigs in Detroit. And one of the first gigs I got in Detroit, James Carter was on it, as was uh, Jaribu Shahid. Uh, and it was just a restaurant gig. But I met those guys pretty early on in my uh in my tenure when I was about 18 years old. Yeah.
And welcome back. This is KXS FLP San Francisco. And that was Craig Taborn in a trio with Aaron Stewart on tenor sax. Actually, quartet, I'm sorry. With Aaron Stewart on tenor sax, Matt Maneri, viola, and Dave King on drums. Same Dave King from the Bad Plus, who was in the first trio we heard this evening. Uh, the Reed Anderson, Dave King, and Craig Taborn quartet, quartet or <laughs> trio. Had started the show with the end of the world. The track from Golden Valley is now. We just heard Craig Taborn's Junk Magic, the title track from 2004. Into conversation with Craig. And having taken that little break, I want to do a show promo for one of the rad shows that you can hear on KXSFLP San Francisco. This is the frequency uplift, but this rocks as well. Hey, KXSF listeners, tune into the Pinkies Down Show with me, DJ Kate, Sunday mornings from 6 to 8 a.m. for deep cuts and contemporary classical music. I'm here to share how amazing this broad and expansive genre is outside of the standards. I know you're going to hear music you've never heard, and I promise you won't look at classical the same way again. And this is what independent radio curated by real people is all about. So grab your coffee and tune in to the Pinkies Down Show, Sundays, 6 to 8 a.m., only on KXSF 102.5 FM, San Francisco. Thank you, Kate. And thank you, Craig. And we're going to carry on with the interview. We talk about junk magic, what we just heard, and a bit more about his techno influences, but let them in. And that just opened that door. Yeah. There was a lot going on, too, in terms of Detroit techno scene happening around that time, mm-hmm. the early Detroit techno scene. And, you know, one of your also a sort of way I have known you is through that Inner Zone Orchestra and the connection with Carl Craig. And mm-hmm. it felt like that, I don't know, it became a, a thing of, of integrating those kinds of sounds, that kind of aesthetic into your music over mm-hmm. time. Uh, encourage you know using more electronics and that track from um, the Interzorn Orchestra's "The Bug in a Basement" ended up, you know, making lots of uh, new genres in electronic music in a way. And then you took it. It oh, felt yeah. like some of your other releases. I'm thinking in particular of 2004's "Junk Magic." Really interesting uh, sounds and integrating that kind of aesthetic into what's definitely a jazz record and we'll talk a little bit about that integration because that feels like it in a way that could be important part of your process it should be said that i when i i started piano around 12 years old 11 or 12 years old taking piano lessons but it was also that same year that because i was interested in piano and then i just knew keyboards or whatever um i had sort of asked my parents uh, if I could get some kind of keyboard. I didn't really know what that meant. I just wanted a, something electric keyboard, you know. Um, and they got uh, a Moog synthesizer for me for Christmas that year. And it was at a time when I think they found it in the, you know, in the paper used for like 150 bucks, 200 bucks, because it was in the 80s, analog synths were out of fashion and they were going really cheap. Everybody wanted a digital, new MIDI-based digital synthesizer so you could get a Moog for a hundred bucks or something. Um, so I got that within, you know, in the same time span of my first year of playing piano, I got a Moog, and I was so I was always interested in um, synthesis and electronic music 
as a separate or as, you know, related, but a separate kind of path. And I was in all this music listening. I also had discovered a lot of electronic artists and music on cred. I had, so I had a whole other pathway into music that was related to electronic music. So saying that fast forwarding. So I always did electronic stuff in high school as well. But fast forwarding to the techno thing, I went to I went to Michigan in 88. That's when I started college. And I remember sitting in the dorm in Ann Arbor and just tuning in to left end, left dial radio and hearing radio from Detroit and hearing things like uh, for techno, real tech, Detroit techno fans, they heard this name like Electrifying Mojo or some of these um, radio very eclectic kind of radio programs out of Detroit where a lot of techno kind of grew from or or was born. And I also heard uh, a Jeff Mills show that would come on, I think Wednesday nights. I can't remember now, but I was picking that stuff up in 88. And it just, I remember the first time I heard this music, I was like, what is this music? And to me, to my ear, which was relatively informed by a few things, I was like, oh, this sounds like, this is like electronic African music. That's what I thought it was. Cause I was like the, the, the patterns of the synthesizers, I was different than my brother was kind of into new wave and mm -hmm. stuff. And I was like, it's kind of like some of the new wave stuff, but it sounds African and the rhythms are African rhythms, but they're being played with synthesizers. That's what my initial thought was. And then somebody came on and said, they kept having these sort of blasting, you know, Detroit techno techno, you know, it was like, mm -hmm. they were kind of, just even coining that term at that point. And I was like, oh, this is different because they didn't have anything like that in Minneapolis that way. And that was my initial interface with it. It was later on, really through some other jazz associations that I got connected to Carl Craig. But the scene in Detroit is a lot more integrated in the sense that there is a pool of musicians who play with a lot of different kinds of music, you know? So you may find, like, almost hilariously to me, somebody who plays with like I know some of the, a lot of the people in Kid Rock's band who are actually, you know, pretty established jazz players in Detroit, but like his horn section are like some great 
jazz straight ahead jazz players in Detroit, but they they played in his band forever, you know, <laughs> or and his musical director, and the same people will play on a, you know, like a Theo Parrish or a, you know, like they'll play in some techno thing or, mm-hmm. or these punk punk rock things, all the or hip hop stuff, you know, it's just all you know, it's it's all over the place there. It's it's a little more fluid on this on this down on the street in Detroit when you're a musician because there's there aren't that many gigs and you start finding that you'll do you'll be playing reggae and then you'll be playing like with a hip-hop group and then mm-hmm. a funk group and then techno and all these things so but that that was my I had first heard techno well before I ever played it but it really influenced my sensibility I, I just knew that was I knew that was possible Right. That kind of music was possible and active before it was actually popular in the States. Right, right. You know, it was a few years later that then the rave scene came back to, and it was like people knew what it was. But I heard it in 88 and I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. You, you mentioned thinking it was like some kind of African electronic African music. Did you end up being mm-hmm. influenced at all by that kind of genre, Francis Bebe and other African? Music? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, it was something, it was interestingly something that I was sort of doing. Like I, I wouldn't say that I was doing techno at all, but I was doing, I was making that. I was kind of trying to take, I was taking like the idea of like maybe doing balafone music, but doing it on my synthesizer and things like that. I was already interested in electronics like that. Celebrating the release <laughs> of, of Shadow Play. What I think first turned me on or, or made me start to listen and hear your music was the your work with Roscoe Mitchell and the work with um, on um, um, on Roscoe Note, Mitchell's Note Factory with the J.I.E.R. the two of you in different channels mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. you know an interesting kind of
And that was a song for my sister, Roscoe Mitchell in the Note Factory, featuring on the right channel for you audiophiles, Mr. Craig Taborn, who we are honored to be in discussion with tonight, playing some of his music in celebration of the new release of his live improvisation solo piano set shadow plays. We'll play more of that. But uh, we're getting into some of his other music as well as background and talking about Roscoe Mitchell and his influence right now. Going to break in one more time for a little underwriter spot, but we'll let the man speak. How that that interplay um, might have influenced your your thinking about space and your music and the, the mm-hmm. how you how you deal with rhythm and the really beautiful way you bring out. Well, it was. I mean, my experience with Roscoe was really essential. And that was a a real inflection point in terms of my development. I mean, I was already playing professionally and I was doing things, but the from the beginning when I first started, I mean, I was a fan of Roscoe's. I'd seen him in Art Ensemble and I'd seen different incarnations of sound and space ensemble. And I was, one of the reasons I was playing with Roscoe or he, Encounter Me was because of the associations with Detroit, because Jaribu Shahid and Tani Tabal had played with Roscoe in the sound ensemble since the late 70s, and also A. Spencer Barefield. So, and they were people I, like, like I mentioned, Jaribu was on the first gig I did in Detroit. So that was part of the link there. Um, but, so I was very aware of Roscoe's music, but I had not worked with him until after I was in, until I was in New York, like at the end of, the 90s but that experience his aesthetics his approach 
and and learning to engage with that really changed the way I encountered the music. Like I heard the way I heard everything and kind of heard like you mentioned things about space and like there's so much about that approach that it kind of rejiggered my whole awareness of how to how to play you know or and how to engage in any musical context and it really formed a lot of my aesthetic moving forward that group when i originally joined like gerald was in note factory and tanya jaribu they were all in there and it was when i the first record it was with matthew ship was the other pianist and then later vijay got in there um much with my encouragement i mean Ros roscoe knew of vijay but I remember there were some other people contending, but I was like, you might want to try Vijay. <laughs> like just, I just thought that would be the right, especially back then I was like, that's the right, that's the person who will engage with Roscoe's whole world yeah. wholeheartedly, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't even know how to begin or I don't know how to encompass it because it was, it's, it was kind of, it permeated a lot of how I thought about music even music away from anything that sounds like Roscoe Mitchell, it changed the way I played straight ahead music at strain or bebop. It changed the way I played everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've been really amazingly prolific and, and um, in all sorts of genres. I mean, um, uh, from straight ahead to bebop to the sort of electronic pop in a way with jazz influences of, of, uh, of golden is net golden valleys now. And um mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, what, what intrigued me too was from that record and, and from your work with Roscoe moving into, um, piano duets with the J and, mm -hmm. and, and just that, how that, um, how that you're playing together sort of informed those kind of interactions. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, that strikes me as a really interesting friendship and a really interesting musical collaboration there. Yeah, yeah. Talk absolutely. a little bit about that kind of, and and how that might have moved you into Avenging Angel. Was there kind of a connection there? If you thinking more about like I'm doing solo work now, and hmm, you know. I, well, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, the solo thing had been going on, kind of parallel to a lot of that, to a lot of the other ensemble work, and it was just something that it was actually there. There was a there was a place in in New York called Tonic back in the early aughts late nineties and early aughts on the Lower East side that was a home to a lot of creative music. Um, and I remember they had gotten a new piano and Sylvie Quavassier was curating. She wanted to make a piano festival and curate that. And it, that was sort of the beginning of my engagement with what eventually became like Avenging Angel and this new album Shadow Plays, which was put to the task of you know when playing a, so, a solo piano concert there was a question of okay so what repertoire and how am I going to approach this and what will it be and I just made a decision I'm going to actually engage in an improvised music performance and see what happens just as a as a not as a you know I I, I don't have time and I have nothing better to do but as a willful decision to just try to engage in that process and I remember that specifically it was that concert that I just thought, let me really just go in here and, and improvise a concert. And it was relatively successful. I remember being surprised, like how much actually did happen. Whereas, you know, cause I was, I was like, oh, I'm not, I was a little worried about it just 
really willfully not preparing anything, but um, it worked out well. So I, I had kept doing that when the opportunity presented itself, but then, um, then when it, when the opportunity came to record with ECM and Maffred Iker, I had been doing a few of those every, like a couple every year. And then I had just finished a tour in Europe of about a week and a half where I had done it. And I think Manfred Eicher had heard about that tour and I it had built up my, my confidence in doing that. So when we talked about doing the, a first album for him, that's what we did. But all of that solo thing is definitely related to Roscoe, who's one of the great solo artists and also someone like Anthony Braxton and just the history of, solo improvised performance. I mean, everybody talks about Keith Jarrett, which is understandable and he's like a a pinnacle, but there were a lot of other people really starting in the late 60s and 70s who had engaged with that in different ways on different instruments and in many ways more challenging instruments than piano to do it. And I actually drew a lot more inspiration from say how Roscoe approaches solo performance. Like and that and that's another piece of just sort of things that I had um, gleaned or absorbed from him was how to even start traversing that space of time, that span of time. And someone like Wadada Leo Smith, who I'd done a little bit with uh, at that point, um, and many others. But th- those kind of players and how they can really engage with a span of time, really creatively. Hey, it's David Noble from Pardon the Interruption. KXSF has been doing an incredible job supporting local businesses and providing a platform for tons of local artists and bands. But they need your help to keep doing what they're doing. Donate online now at kxsf.fm. Thanks for supporting the local music scene by supporting nonprofit community radio, KXSF 102.5 FM, San Francisco. Support for KXSF San Francisco Community Radio is provided by Babylon Burning, San Francisco's oldest screen printer. Babylon Burning is a San Francisco legacy business offering full-service screen printing for your band or company. Located in San Francisco's Soma District at 63 Bluxom Street, Babylon Burning has served the Bay Area since 1976. Their website is babylontee.com. That's B-A-B-Y-L-O-N-T-E-E.com. Um, that feeds directly into it. But I, you asked about the duo and how that, that, that's sort of a little bit something else, I think. But th- Thank you. And this is KXSFLP, San Francisco 102.5 FM, streaming at the World Wide Web at KXSF.FM. It's 11 o'clock. This is the Frequency Uplift. We are hanging out with Craig Taborn, listening to uh, an interview and some general music from him. Can you carry on with this? We have a lot more interesting material, and I think we'll talk, play a little bit at first of the solo pieces that he was just talking about, Avenging Angel, the album from 2011. Uh, this is Diamond Turning Dream. Thanks for turning in. Thank you. 
the, all those things were working parallel to one another. And that was improvised but, between the two of you, right? So yes, yeah. So that that's true, and that span, of course, mm -hmm. uh, or not, of course, but uh, we've said it in our press release that came out of that of us playing together with Roscoe's Note Factory. There were these um, in preparing for that preparing that music. Um, often there would be sectionals where each because that uh, for people who don't know the note factory is a basically a duo dual pairing of instruments there's two drummers two bassists two pianos and then a horn front front section so often the drums would go and rehearse the music and the bassist would go off into another space or another room and rehearse and then Vijay and I would go to another space and rehearse mm -hmm. and rehearse a lot of improvising but more it was to rehearse Roscoe's written really through composed very challenging pieces so there was a lot of attention to detail but out of that process of just working together on that music and then working together on how to approach improvising with that that's where Vijay and I really formed a bond about that it you know just th there was a work ethic and an aesthetic and also just yeah this how the that friendship developed out of that. I'd known him before um, for a few years, but that that situation we got to really actually play together, which is rare for a lot of pianists. So, and that definitely developed that duo duo project, which is an improvised project as well. Yeah, you're right.
so I mean it, that in that project you all talk about you know sort of um, giving props and 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 noting the influences of some of recently passed and remarkable pianists such as Jerry Allen, Cecil Taylor, mm -hmm. and I wonder wanted to ask you about sort of who you I mean who you would consider your big influences in coming through that obviously Roscoe mm -hmm. Mitchell and and that yeah. process. But are there mm -hmm. other sort of pianists you would want to say, you know, this is, I learned mm -hmm. this from this person. Yeah. Well, you just hit two of the biggest ones for me, which is Cecil and Jerry Allen. Um, um, yeah. If I had a list, they're right at the top. Mm -hmm. um, uh, of course, many others, uh, like I mentioned, like Horace Silver was something that was an early influence because my dad's was one of my dad's favorite players. Herbie Hancock and Keith Jarrett. Sun Ra is huge for me. Um, and then a lot of, I mean, Abdullah Ibrahim's huge for me. That's one yeah. that I think people don't talk about, but that's really big. Uh, and then there's people like Earl Hines and Love Duke Ellington. And of course, Monk. I mean, you yeah, can go into the litany, yeah. but if it, but Cecil Taylor really turned me on to the idea, just that that was the gateway into anything that wasn't, conventional jazz piano that was the that was my first challenge in listening like I remember the process of really engaging and not getting it and still trying to I was just I was really captivated by it even though I really didn't get it when I was like 13 14 and then um and then later that became sort of a template for for me in a lot of ways um and Jerry Allen also in an entirely different way. I saw her at the Walker Art Center, uh, probably one of her first solo concerts out, like in the wider world. I think it was like 85. Well, she did uh, a solo performance there um, that I saw that just blew my mind because it was the integration of, you know, she really integrated all of it all of these things like there's this Herbie Hancock, this Bud Powell thing, the Cecil Taylor thing, and all this sort of R&B and funk stuff. And it all comes out really fluently in all of her writing, but in that solo work, it was just all there. And it was like, wow, I've never really heard, I've heard other kinds of things, but not where it's like, oh, I hear clearly Cecil Taylor, you know, Mead Lux Lewis, Bud Powell and Stevie Wonder right in this same moment, you know, going on. And that was instructive. And that's kind of a Jerry Allen thing. I, I still think that she doesn't get enough credit or people don't really understand what a powerful and iconic force she was in the music. You know, she really integrated these things in a way and not that many people stand at that position, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you can really hear the, all those influences moving right. through your work, especially in this last uh, the Shadow Place work. It's interesting between the, the solo and uh, improv uh, work of Avenging and, and the Shadow Plays release, you're moving from kind of doing it in studio into the concert environment. And I wondered a little bit if that changed the music for you, if, it, if having the listening audience uh, interview with DJ and he talked about how the presence of the audience listening became a really force for him and, and he thought in general for musicians. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the audience is the is an essential ingredient in, in the improvisational performance process, for sure. I mean, you can't, 
I mean, it's just the factor that is, that's the musical partner in that way. And to a large extent, my, my sense of it, or my, the way I explain it to people, because it's hard, because there's this, always a sense of agency and people even, whether they're trying to, you know, cast some sort of, of performance ethic or something, they always say, do you think about the audience? And the, the ultimate answer I give is, a, well, not only do I think about the audience, I am, because there's, a, there's an aspect of, in, even in the performance where you are just the observer of the activity as well. So your aesthetic, any sensibility that's operating has to do with you listening to what's happening. And as George Lewis says, improvisation is really attending to an environment. And even though you're generating the music at the same way you're listening, but so I'm, a, you know, you you are part of that audience at the same time. And so you're, it's a, it's a weird space, but that audience thing is really, really essential for me. And it does change when you don't have it. But the interesting thing about the Avenging Angel album is that was, that's more the aberration, if I, that's not, that's like a negative connotation, but just that situation of doing the solo performance in a studio, that's the only time that ever happened. You know, you know, 99% of the time, if I'm doing it, I'm performing live in front of an audience. Right. And so there were more challenges to approaching that space and doing that recording because I didn't have that feedback. Or I had the audience of Maffer Eicher and uh, Stefano Amerio, the sound engineer, up in the booth. You know, right. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was the audience there, you know, um, which was great, but it was like I was alone with my own right. thoughts. So there was nothing to bounce things off of. And also there was no performance span, you know, that wasn't like, okay, I have 90 minutes to make a concert. So how am I going to divide it up? I had a, we did that recording in an afternoon, you know, on a Saturday afternoon in, in um, Switzerland. So it was great, but it was, it, it, it created a different kind of context because I didn't really know what I was constructing on the whole. Right. Whereas in performance, you do for better or worse. It's like, okay, this is, this is where we are now. And I've done this. So what can I do next or what can happen next? Where that avenging angel, I really was just, I engaged it with it just making pieces. Mm. And then I thought we'd figure it out later how, what arcs there were. Cause it, when, when I recorded avenging angel, we recorded 33 pieces. Wow. And there's what 13, 12 or 13 on the album. So there, there's like a lot of other music from that session that, that just wasn't used. And were you coming, you had just come off that European tour and were you bringing sort of mm -hmm. sections and themes and that, that kind of like um, uh -huh. co collation of material that you were kind of playing with from the... You, you're speaking about Avenging Angel? Avenging Angel, yes. No. Yeah, um, actually, well, I was coming off of, uh, well, the tour had happened in like March, April that year and that recording was in July. I was actually coming off of teaching for a week in... Um, a at a jazz camp in the mountain in the central Switzerland with I remember it was like Wayne it was a group Dave Benny had put together with Wayne Krantz, Ambrose, oh. Ekinmusuri, Gretchen Parlato, and Dan Weiss. And we had just been teach so I had been teaching all day and then I just go and like play piano like in the evening. I didn't socialize after the teaching day, but I was exhausted because I'd have to go a full day teaching like 
jazz tunes and then I'd go and just practice at night. I'd skip dinner and just play as late as I could go until about midnight, one in the morning, and then I did it because I knew I had this recording coming up. So that it was a little bit strange because I it was a it was the kind of something I wouldn't have wanted to do. But in a way it it set it up in an interesting way because it really put me in another headspace. Yeah. And what was the prelude like to recording um, Shadow Plays at, uh, at, uh, in Vienna there at the Mozart Saal in the Wiener Concert House? Well, that was in the middle of a tour. Um, I had known it was cut. I mean, it was when I saw it, I thought that the solo thing had developed. It had changed enough, I should say, that I thought it might be worth documenting where it is now. Um, I had really thought about maybe going into the studio again with Manford, but um, like w what we've been talking about, so much of what really happens is live. I thought it'd be better to record live, but Manford can be, a, you know, he's, he's very particular about the instrument and the quality of the instrument and stuff. So, and I play all kinds of spaces <laughs> from like really funky little jazz clubs to like a Vienna concert house quality. So when I saw that, um, gig was on the books, I thought, oh, this would be maybe a good place to document something. And then I was just thinking, if let's just try it and hopefully, you know, if it's a good performance, which it's not guaranteed, but I just thought we could try it. So I asked Manford and he said, yeah, we should record it. And then if it's if we want to use it, we have it. So that's what happened. But the context of it was also that this was... Um, in the dawning of COVID, uh, everything was shutting down. I had several gigs. I, I, if you remember in March, this was March 2nd when we did it. If you remember borders the flash, were closing. borders were closing. The flashpoint right then for COVID was in Bergamo, Italy, which was the gig I was supposed to play the night before. And I was supposed to go to Bergamo and it canceled obviously. And my agent, said, well, you still have a hotel in Bergamo. Do you want to go there? And I was like, no, I don't <laughs> want to go there. I do not want to go to Italy and get stuck there. Um, so yeah, everything was crumbling. I had several dates of that tour canceling and everything was very uncertain. Mm. Um, but that was, so all that was going on too. It was a very interesting time. And I knew I had that performance coming up of, uh, just at Vienna Concert House. But I was comfortable because I knew we're just documenting it. It wasn't mandated that it has to be. It wasn't like a done deal that it was going to be a record. Right. It was just, I knew they were sending somebody so it would be documented well. So I, I was relaxed enough. Um, a funny aside, or a funny coincidence or aside for me as a music fan was that I um, did that performance and then you... At Vienna Castro House, there's a restaurant, and often the performers eat after the performance because they're on the early side. Mm -hmm. and so I went into the restaurant after doing that to eat, and then in comes Martha Argaret, and who is one of my ultimate heroes in piano. And she had been playing in the net, the other hall oh, wow. that night. And if I had known that, it might have completely freaked me out. Like I was, I was really glad I didn't know she was playing in the other hall. Cause that, it might've helped. It might've, I don't know, but it would have really impacted me in some strange way. Uh, <laughs> I, right 
Yeah. Cakes SF in dialogue with Craig Taborn. This is from the new album, Shadow Plays. A code with spells.
bit. Close out a little bit. And that was Craig Taborn, solo piano live at the Concert House Vienna 2020, A Code with Spells, the track. We're in conversation, wrapping up our interview with Mr. Craig Taborn, just released this album, Shadow Plays, out on ECM. Um, Spent some time chatting with me. Gonna take a minute to say this thank you and then be right back to finish the interview. Perhaps play one or two more songs from him. And don't know if we're gonna get to all the other music, but let's go with this. Support for KXSF comes from Lady Falcon Coffee Club, an iconoclastic, only in San Francisco coffee roastery. Born and blended by the beach in the outer sunset and female-owned and operated, look for Lady Falcon Coffee Club beans at Byright, Williams-Sonoma, Gus's, Rainbow Grocery, Good Eggs, and other fine food vendors, or at their vintage mobile coffee truck about town. Learn more by visiting their website at ladyfalconcoffeeclub.com. Thanks for supporting San Francisco Community Radio. And thank you for tuning in to KXSFLP, San Francisco 102.5 FM, the frequency uplift in, uh, in conversation with Craig Taborn. There's a sort of an easy way to say it. I know we've been talking about it all the way along, but if you have some sort of sense of, a, of a, your philosophy of, of improvisation and of creating this kind of work, uh obviously it's oftentimes i'll ask people you know how you want the audience to receive it in a way and and that transformation that inevitably happens as you listen to um another an artist's work right and so Mm -hmm. well for me in terms of doing that thing i mean for me i have a very i mean there's a wide range of of possibilities for what improvising is, you know, from just opening the space enough to make a couple odd decisions in a very structured, in a very structured piece to really leaving the doors wide open for inspiration and uh, to influence everything that's going on, which is kind of what a lot of the Avenging Angel or Shadow Plays stuff is or what I like the duo I do with Vijay Iyer is it's really just okay let's see what what comes to us in this moment and and leave it really up to that moment which is really site specific but what what that means for me always in these performances isn't so much that it has to be uh, um, even that esoteric or that I even have to always improvise the piece if I had the gumption even it meant like if i felt like playing you know a bach two-part invention in that moment i could do that and 
I've played tunes, I've played other pieces sometimes, but I'm saying all that to say, for me, the process of listening or enjoying those kind of improvisational moments, and especially with my broad musical affections, it's to really just let each thing work, you know, it's magic. You know, I, I don't, I like, I think going in with expectation or, or some sort of condition of what, uh, you even want to get out of any experience. Um, you know, if you're asking anything out of those experiences, you're almost asking too much. I think it's, it's, it can be a lot more enjoyable to let it really be, uh, an experience. You know, my favorite word, one of my favorite words is discovery and just leaving that space open to allow things to work on you and do whatever they may do is, is ultimately kind of the joy of it for me. And I like, I like surprise. I like discovery and, you know, and letting those experiences kind of inform you and move you on to the next thing that you're going to experience and inform in life. Uh, or experience or or deal with in life um, that informs you. So that that's how I approach that music. And that's really like how I would, that's how I love to experience music like that or any music. And that's the thing is it's really something that I do no matter what the context or what the the operating principle of the music is. I just sort of like to go in and experience things you know, very openly. And I, I personally just derive joy from that. And that's what I hope other people get out of it. Yeah. And so you're, you're off to Europe again. Is this a, uh, a, a trio group? This is a, a, a new trio, newish trio. It's um, with Chess Smith on drums and percussion and uh, Tamika Reed on cello. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, we've played a few gigs, but this was a tour that was supposed to happen last October, mm -hmm. and obviously it was canceled. So we're just doing it now. So this was really the opportunity to kind of develop this group more. So it's still kind of finding, it's still finding its final shape or just what it wants to be. I've opened the door for lots of. There's electronics. I've got Tamika's excited to experiment with pedals, but it's also a very acoustic. The thing I like about it is it can move between like it's cello, chess is drummer, but also percussion, mm -hmm. like you know Willie Winant student, all that. Mm -hmm. So he, he's got the, um, the it's got this possibility of being almost a chamber like group, or being a traditional jazz thing just with cello, or it can move into this electronic realm, and I like that that kind of morphing quality that we can we can move really through different radical spaces and that's what's exciting and in with this really small group and i i always love stuff like that exciting is there a name for the group not yet i'm still working on it everybody because uh, i'm i gotta find a good good name for this group and i'm i keep i think this tour it'll it'll settle in but i haven't found it yet so it's yeah. just our names but i do like the idea of naming projects mm -hmm. you know Okay. Yeah, so well, I'll figure I do, it out. I do love your names, and and you know, I didn't really get into that. Yeah. Well, I oh, hope to see you sometime out there. I I, I think so. I'm not playing my. I'm playing out there at SF. I mean, Chris Potter's got a whole residency at SF Jazz in March, and I'm definitely on a lot of that. <laughs> and uh, again, 
Breakfast. This is uh, Craig Taborn, whose new release, Shadow Plays, a solo improvisation and from March of 2020, as we were saying, in the yeah. <laughs> your concert house. Yeah. It's rot time, and it's a beautiful yeah. uh, on ECM just out. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. I am- and that was Craig Taborn. His new release, Shadow Plays, as I said, just out on ECM. In the background, a long track, Bird Templars. But I think we'll go out this section with one more from Shadow Plays, one of my favorites on the album. Uh, This is a conspiracy, or conspiracy of things. We'll be back with some other music, and thanks again to Craig Taborn for being so generous with his time, and thank you for listening, for being so generous with yours. This is KXSFLP, San Francisco, the Frequency Uplift, and this is Conspiracy of Things.
Community Music Center is a San Francisco vital hub for music education and performance anchored in the city's Mission District and the Outer Richmond. Founded in 1921, CMC is a nonprofit organization providing high-quality music instruction to anyone, regardless of financial means, and inspiring students to reach their fullest potential. For information on classes, summer camps, or how you can help CMC enrich scholarships for in-need students, go to sfcmc.org.
Coffee Brown, and I want to give a big shout out to KXSF, who's been supporting local businesses and bands and artists like me, the Coffee Brown Band, and they need your help. They need you to go online right now to kxsf.fm 
and donate and they've been doing a fantastic job so why don't you give back just a little bit and um, help keep them going help keep them thriving all right y'all peace and love Support for KXSF comes from Open Mind Music, a haven for record lovers since 1994. Henry at Open Mind believes music soothes the soul, inspires change, and makes us move. Find a wide variety from ABBA to Zappa, funk to punk, bebop to hip-hop, including new and used LPs, vintage turntables, local art, and your chance to meet Roxy the Doxy. Come find your groove in record time at Open Mind Music, 5521 College Avenue near Rockridge Bart in Oakland. And thank you. Thank you for tuning in to KXSFLP San Francisco. Thank you to Open Mind. Thank you to Craig Taborn, our guest to this evening, looking at all his music and celebrating the release of his new solo piano outing, Shadow Plays, just out on ECM. I'm not going to reach all the music that I had hoped to, but uh, we just heard from South Africa from Johannesburg, the great uh, performance art jazz collective, The Brother Moves On, their new release on Matsuli Music, Tolika Untukalike, Toliki, I believe, and um, this means literally the interpreter taking and sampling and reworking wisdom of South African musical elders uh, like Batsumi and Malombo, Mongezi Feza, Johnny Diani, uh, Philip Tabane, the list goes on in the rich field of South African jazz. Um, we heard the track, we'll probably play some more of this because it's a brilliant new album. Uh, we've heard the track Kea Bereka, and that, of course, features Siabango Mutembu on vocals. Mohamed Daji on tenor sax, uh, Matunzi Mvubu on alto sax, uh, the keys of Bukani Dyer, and uh, also Steve Dyer on guitar, Ariel Zamanski on bass, uh, Zeloezi Matembu on guitar. Uh, the list goes on. A large collective and an amazing group. Go out. Uh, it is 11.58. Stay tuned. For the next thing, the next big thing. And stay tuned next week for our second poet series, Tongan poet uh, uh, Fui Fui Lupe Nuime Metola, who is going to come through and share some of her wisdom, her academic pursuits, her studies um, in anti-colonialism, as well as her brilliant poetry. And we thank her in advance. Looking forward to that next week. Um, and take care. Frequency uplifting out. I'm going to leave you with, uh, from out of the UK and elsewhere, Half Bloom by Asta Hiroki. Here we go. Thanks for tuning in.
It is midnight. KXSF LP San Francisco 102.5 FM. Frequency uplift and out.